So we're, we're in this series called Wait, right? And so we don't like to wait. Anybody like to wait? It's not fun whether you're waiting, you know, for your team to win a championship, which can take in some cases forever, or whether you're waiting for something more serious like a diagnosis, you know, what, what your health is going to be, whether you have cancer or not. It can get serious. And it can be frustrating. You can be waiting for, you know, getting stuck in an elevator. It can be waiting for somebody to come pick you up. It can be waiting to see what your grade's going to be. It can be waiting to see if you're going to get a promotion. For us as a church, we're waiting. We're waiting to finish paying for our property, to build a building, to finish putting in our infrastructure, our elders, and our training, and all the things that we're putting in. All that's happening, and it's really exciting. It's going to happen. But we have to wait a little bit. It doesn't just happen like that. And waiting can be a good thing, but it can be a difficult thing. So has anybody in this room ever done something they really regretted? Once? So most of you haven't. Most of you don't know what I'm talking about. I've got a couple hands raised, but everybody else says, no, nah, I'm good. No, but uh, I think at least once we've done something. Like maybe it's that crossword that you wish you could have taken back. Or maybe, uh, maybe it was that, you know, that hasty investment. Or maybe it was the job you left or the relationship you left prematurely. And then it's like, how do, I, how do I fix this? We do those things. And have you ever noticed that a common denominator is that those things usually happen when we're waiting, when we're in a stressful situation. And the more stress we have, it becomes a pressure cooker, and we do things. And there are consequences to the things we do. And a lot of times consequences are good, but there are unwanted consequences, right? Because we did the wrong thing, and now we're doing the right thing, but those consequences can come back to haunt us. Is that true? I mean, we can, we can all see that. It happens. It's just, it's just part of life. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about that with David. Now, David was a man who lived centuries before Jesus. And sometimes people say, well, what can we learn from him? It's so far, be- you know, so far in- ago. But do you know that um, Paul will later say, in 2 Timothy, he says that all Scripture is profitable for us. We can learn from it. It all trains us. And people will say, well, well, David didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have in the New Testament. Remember, there's one God, but he makes himself known um, eternally through three co-equal peop- persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who comes to live within us and causes us to come to know Jesus, to, to really know him. But you know, in the Old Testament... There's a lot of passages about the Holy Spirit. And anything that's been done good or anything that's done miraculous or whatever, it comes from the Holy Spirit. So I don't understand the theology there, how it happens, but I do believe that the things that, Jesus, that David does well are examples of how we should live right and what happens when we're walking with God. And so we can look at his life and say, he believed in Jesus was coming and he was depending on God as best he could and God empowered him when he depended on God. So we need to depend on God when we're waiting. And when we're waiting, sometimes if we get ahead, we'll have unwanted circumstances. It happened to David. So we're going to look at David and what happened to him. We're going to look at the story that we have before us today. And then after we look at the story, we're going to make some observations and some applications, okay? Okay. Ready to jump into it? We need to give some background here. Now think Robin Hood. Think 
the Lord of the Rings. This was a barbaric, savage world that David lived in. Israel didn't have a king, and God gave them a king, and his name was King Saul. And King Saul turned away from God, and he hardened his heart against God, and the result of that is he began to have demonic influence in his life, and he became an insane man, very narcissistic and very angry and very jealous and just out of control. He turned against God, and so God turned against him. And he used Samuel, who wrote most of what we're going to be reading today, the great prophet, to tell Saul, I'm going to be taking your kingdom away from you. And then Saul privately went to the village of Bethlehem, and he anointed David, who was a teenager, as the future king of Israel. There's no explanation on how this is going to happen. It's just going to happen. Can you imagine that? I mean, put yourself in that position. You're a teenager. Somebody says, you know, you're going to be king, but I'm not going to tell you how it's going to happen. Well, then David beats Goliath. He becomes a hero of Israel. Saul makes him the captain of his bodyguard. He marries the king's daughter, Michael. So he becomes part of the royal family and best friends with Prince Jonathan, the the heir to the kingdom. And now all of a sudden he's thinking, hey, I might be king one day. This is really going to happen. He's got to be thinking this is getting close. And so he talks um, to Jonathan and Jonathan says, hey, if my dad dies and I become king, I'm giving you the crown because I know God wants you to be king. And so he's thinking, well, it's probably all going to work out. It's just a matter of time. But that's not how it works out with Saul. Saul is intensely jealous, and he starts trying to kill David. And he forces David to flee Gibeah, which was then the capital of Israel. And he leaves his wife. Can you imagine having to leave your friends and everything? And he's on the run, and he's with a ragtag group of maybe seven guys, and he's waiting, waiting. What do I do next? What would you do? Seven guys? You're going to take on the whole army? You're going to take on the whole kingdom? You're going to run away? Where are you going to hide? And David, David, I think, panics. And he goes to Nob, which is about two miles away from the, the capital of Gibeah, and he goes to this little village of Nob, and they have a giant tent there called the Tabernacle, which is functioning as a temple because they don't have a temple yet. And David goes in there, and he goes to the high priest, Ahimelech, and he says, um, he says, I need food. Well, they don't have any food. He says, well, we have consecrated bread. Could I have it? Okay, I'll give you some bread. You're a good guy, David. I'll give you some bread. Then he says, can I have Goliath's sword? What in the world is Goliath's sword doing in the tabernacle? Historically, when somebody won a battle, they would go to temples, not just in Israel, and you would commemorate that weapon to God and give it to them. The consensus among scholars is that David had given that, apparently, to the temple. Now he's taking it back. What is he thinking about? There's no indication that David here is praying to God, as we see in other passages. He does do the thing that you're supposed to do. Apparently, he says to him, like, could you pray for me or give me some words of guidance? But that's what you're supposed to do. David does not seem to be connected. And worst of all, he notices there's a man there named Doeg the Edomite. And this man is an evil man. Have you ever known an evil person? Have you ever known a person in your life who say, I, don't, I want to be careful what I say around that person? Ever known anybody like that? A couple of you are nodding your heads. I've known some people like that. Doeg was that person. And he knew that if Doeg heard what he was saying, it would get back to Saul. So did he stop? Did he stop doing what he was doing? 
He went ahead with his plan. Because why? Because he was panicked. Because he didn't want to wait. So he charged ahead on his own with his own plan. And he left, and he and his men went up to these big, this, this, this city of Gath. And they had this big walled city. And it was just like, you know, you see in the movies where they probably opened the gate to see who's here. Who's here knocking on our door in our big, our, our, our rounded town with the big walls. And Gath was one of the capitals of Philistia. And they were fighting the Philistines, and it was the home of Goliath. Do you understand why he maybe had Goliath's sword now? This is what people believe is he took that sword because we never hear about the sword again. He took it to Gath and he said, let me in and I'll give you Goliath's old sword. And maybe we can become friends. He makes friends with the enemy. And he says, I will serve you. I'm having a war with Saul. I will serve you. Now we know from other things about David that he never was full-hearted into serving them. But he was probably looking at himself as serving as a spy. But the people begin to turn against him. And you know what David does? David gets really nervous. And so he pretends he's, he's insane, and then he and his men run for the hills. It's the lowest point in David's life up to this point. And then what happened last week? David finds an old cave that he used to hang out at when he was a shepherd boy. And he goes into that cave with his men, and he starts praying to God. And he starts writing songs, which we have now as psalms. And he starts reconnecting and he apologizes and he pours out his heart in praise to God and, and confession to God. And God restores him. And people come to him. And he assembles 300 fighting men. Amazing. It's all turning around. And he takes his parents to Moab, modern-day Jordan, so that they'll be safe. And then he comes back. He has a prophet now named Gad who's advising him. And he's back in the, the forest of Hereth, probably hanging out at the cave of Adullam. And everything's going well. Everything's turned around. Ever been there? I made some mistakes, but those are in the past. I forgot about those. Everything's going really well. Until David has a visitor come talk to him with unnerving news. David has unwanted consequences. We're going to talk about those now, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, I'd like to ask you to just close your eyes and listen, but I'm afraid that we might lose some of you. So you can look if you want, but I'm going to read this. This is great ancient literature. I'm going to do the best I can to read it. Really pay attention because it's a great, great storytelling technique here. Um, this is what happens. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, man of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all of the, your fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's official, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. 
Ahimelech inquired of Yahweh for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and his father's whole family, who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord. He answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole household. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priest of Yahweh, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priest of Yahweh. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword knob the town of the priest with its men, women, its children and infants and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priest of Yahweh. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine. You will be safe with me. Pretty heavy, huh? You've had some unwanted consequences. Have you ever been responsible for the death of hundreds of people? David's in that situation. Now, some observations is Saul, you know, he, he's a bad guy. He has this meeting place on this hill, and he has this big tamarisk tree, which wasn't native to um, Israel, but it was this big spreading tree. And the language indicates that it might have even been a shrine. They might have had a pagan shrine up there. Paul is, Saul's heart is not at all on God. And, and he's so narcissistic. You notice how he keeps talking about me? And he puts everybody down, son of a high tub, son of Jesse, instead of calling them by their own names. And look at what I could give you if you follow me. You see, the guy's got issues, right? I mean, psychologists could figure this guy out pretty quickly. He's messed up. And so what Saul does then is he says, let's find out what's going on. And Doeg tells him, just like David knew, he shouldn't have said anything, right? And Doeg heard, and Doeg tells him, and he, next thing you know, we have a Himalek there. I, what do you guys think of a Himalek? I think he was a pretty brave dude. I would like to go down that way. 
He doesn't whine. He doesn't say, please don't hurt me. I didn't do anything. It's not true. He says, hey, everything you said is true. I own it. That's what happened. I don't have anything to apologize for. I'm good. You want to take my life, you take it. But I'm not going to blink. I know I did the right thing. And so Saul says, I want him killed. His people won't kill him. So Doeg doesn't do it by himself. In all likelihood, he had a bunch of herdsmen. And they were armed and the other people weren't. And they just went in and slaughtered him. Unsuspecting. And years ago, Samuel had predicted that Eli's family would stop ruling as priests in Israel because of their behavior. And isn't it interesting that everybody's gone but one now? So we're getting close to the fulfillment of that prophecy. But Abiathar continues to live, and he goes, and he's now like the priest-elect, and he's looking for the king-elect, and they get connected, and he tells them this bad news, and we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about the implications of that bad news. First thing that I want to talk about is um, when faced with unwanted consequences, take responsibility. I imagine Abiathar was kind of worn out, you know, kind of worn and ragged, and he comes looking for David. He comes to the forest of Hereth. One of David's scouts says, aren't you Abiathar the priest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Can you tell me where David is? Come with me. And they bring him in to see Captain David, and he tells David what's going on. And David responds to this horrific news. And what's striking is that David doesn't deny it, but he takes responsibility. Men and and women, if you are in leadership, this is the sign of a good leader. A good leader, when things go well with the company, the business, the team, whatever it is, the church, they will give credit to the people who made that happen. And likewise, if something goes wrong, a good leader will take the responsibility. That's biblical leadership. And David does that again and again. I will take responsibility for my actions. And we need to take responsibility for our own actions too. You know, when, when I was a boy, I lived in, you know, these little kind of cookie-cutter homes, you know, in this little sub, suburban community, a little track of homes. And we had a home next to us. We didn't even have a fence. We knew the neighbors really well. And Brian was my best friend. And they moved away when I was nine and two little girls moved in. That was rough. I had two sisters. I didn't need any more, right? And so that was rough. But, you know, kids figure out ways to play with each other. Uh, I actually ended up kind of having a crush on the younger gal, and then they moved away. It's like, what's wrong with my family, you know? It seems like that always happens. Now people are moving away from my neighborhood. Your people always are moving. So they were moved, they moved away. But while they were living there, we learned to play with them. And I remember one day, it was summer, and they were, they were squirting me, like as squirt guns or whatever. And I had retreated across the street, and the neighbor had these little pebbles, you know? So I was tossing pebbles at them, you know? And they were spraying me, and they go, don't hit my uncle's Cadillac. Well, their uncle had this big, hideous Cadillac. He'd come from Washington. It's it's like that's what he lived for, okay? He had it parked out in front of the house, and I thought, one little pebble is not going to hurt that thing. So I threw the pebble, and I hit it. Oh, he hit the Cadillac! You know, they run into their uncle. Well, next thing, uncle comes out. So I I, I did the best thing. You know, the wisest thing to do in such a situation, I started running. (laughs) 
I hit it head around the corner. I was hauling. I was hauling. But every time I turned around, this uptight uncle was walking briskly after me. And I'm going farther and farther, and he keeps coming. And I'm running, and he's coming. And my feet were hurting. I mean, I was barefoot. It was summertime. It was, you know, it was hot. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get out of this? I could go back at cover of night. Um, but sooner or later, I got to go home. You know, I got to go home. And this guy is going to be waiting for me. So what do I do? I finally realized I, I just got to stop fighting this thing and go back. I determined I'd hold my head high and be tough. And I, I was able to hold on. And I remember I went back and I said, well, what's up? You know, and, and he wasn't too hard on me. I don't remember. We black out those bad moments in our life anyway. Um, I, think he, I think he charged me like 25 cents or 50 cents or something like that. There was no damage to that thing. It, you know, but, but he was teaching me a lesson. And the lesson that I learned was you cannot run away from your mistakes, from your sins, from your crime, because they will always catch up to you. You may not think they will, but they will, because what you do in the cover of darkness, God sees as if it was midday. And you're going to have to answer to him sometime. And David owns up to it. And so you see with David is he owns up with it. The best thing to do when you blow it is to own it. Now, the starting place is understanding that God, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So you're forgiven once and for all. And you don't have to go around feeling guilty about it. You can have a relationship with him. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's understanding that, you know, we, we need to admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and choose to follow Christ and put our faith in Him alone. If you haven't done that, we encourage you to come and talk to us. But even if you have, there are times when we still sin, right? We still do things wrong, and it can cause a feeling of division with God. And so the starting place is always to go to God and say, you know, I know you've forgiven me, but I feel bad for what I've done. We're not communicating, and this is going to eat me up until I get it out. So God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did the wrong thing. Please help me to turn and go in the right direction. In some ways, that's easier than the next step, which is that we need to make sure that we ask forgiveness from others. M. Scott Peck writes, the difficulty we have in taking responsibility for our behavior lies in the desire to avoid the pain of the consequences of that behavior. We don't want to say anything because we know there could be pain if we do. We don't want the consequences of, having, of, of saying we're sorry and maybe being rejected or whatever it might be. We don't want to feel the shame. And this is pretty common. I was in two churches over my years as a pastor, and both of these churches had the same I, I, mentality, which was if we do something wrong, it will hurt our credibility before our people because people think that Christians are the people that do everything right. And they didn't understand that Christians are the people that acknowledge that they do most things wrong, that we're messed up. You know, and they, don't, they didn't start there. They started saying, well, we do everything right. And so therefore, anytime anything went wrong, they, you know, they rounded the, the, the wagons and they went into cover-up mode. And they began to go into denial. And in both cases, it nearly destroyed both churches because they weren't being honest with the sin in their lives. So it can happen at all levels. You see it happening with boards and companies, but it happens with us individually, doesn't it? 
It, it does. You know, I mean, we, we can get caught up into it. And I think what happens is when somebody confronts us, it, if somebody confronts you and says that you've hurt them, in all likelihood, you have. And I'll tell you why. Because most of us, if we had major league batting averages, they would be below 200. You know, I mean, we, we, do, we don't hit that well. We're, in, we're, we're sinful people, so we know we sin, and when we sin, it's okay, God's forgiven us, but we get right with God and we get right with others. But if we go around thinking we don't sin, then we're in a lot of trouble. So when somebody comes to you and they say, you know, you've hurt me, what do we normally do? Here's the first reaction. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I don't believe that. And what about you? Remember 10 years ago when you looked at me weird? You know, that's what we do. Remember that? And I remember seeing you do the same thing to her. And we're just, all of a sudden, we're all over the place. But, but how about admitting it? You know, it, it's so hard for us to do. It's so hard because the natural thing is to say, no, I haven't done it. De deflect the blame. Um, to say, let's, let's, just, let's just say this is water under the bridge. Let's just let this go. Let's just, you know, laugh it off. You know, can't we just forget about it? But when you do those things, you don't resolve the conflict. And you're actually being intensely dishonest. But if you can be honest and say, yeah, I did. What did we do wrong? Usually they're over-exaggerating. But that's, this diffuses it. And you say, okay, let's talk about it. Let's walk through what I did wrong. And if we have problems, we'll get somebody else to come and mediate it, like Jesus says we should in Matthew chapter 18. Work through your issues with people. Make sure that you really have a legitimate healing in that relationship as much as you can be at peace with them. Um, now, there's, there's a flip side to this. And the flip side is there's some people that always think they're wrong. Have you ever noticed that? There's some people that, oh, it must have been me. Oh, man, you know, mom and dad got divorced. It's my fault. Somebody died. It's my fault. Don't, don't give yourself so much credit. You know, you don't really have that much control. And, and don't put that on yourselves. God is the one who's in control. We talked about last week. Thank God that he's in control. He's the one who's taking care of things. Now, I want you to think about this whole idea of taking responsibility. What sin are you presently hiding from God or trying to hide from God? What sin have you stored, are you storing in your basement? What sin have you not confessed? What relationship is hurting because you're not dealing with them the way you should? You've never really sought reconciliation. Are you on some kind of leadership team Maybe you're on a board with a company and they're doing things. There are allegations against you that are true. Can you lead the way to saying, let's tell the truth and let's resolve this thing? Or do you need to step down for your own sake because of your own personal ethics? Now, these are difficult questions, but we need to work through them. I encourage you that before the day is out that you get right with God and before the week is out that you get right with anybody that you've hurt. And you get your heart right with God, even as David did. And you just admit it. Here's the big problem. If we realize that we're all sinners, then we know we make mistakes, so then it's okay. I blew it. I'm sorry. Let's work through it. I had a situation just this week. I have a very good friend who was doing some work for me, and uh, we had a misunderstanding, and I realized that I had to own it. I had to own some things, and I had to tell him, I'm sorry. I didn't communicate to you right. That was wrong of me. And, and, and you know, I mean, it, it ended up in a relationship, I think, being restored. It was hurtful, it was painful, it took time. It was worth it. I wish I'd have learned this when I was younger. 
I think I've left a lot of relationships scarred probably in my earlier days because I didn't respond correctly. And I still, by nature, I don't. But I can see it in David's life, and it, and it begins to impact me, and I hope it impacts you. The second thing is take your anguish to God. Take your anguish to God. That's what David does. He goes now to God, and he just pours out his heart. And you say, well, it doesn't say that here. No, it doesn't say that here. But David wrote a song about this, and it's, found, it's called Psalm 52. And historically, we believe that this psalm came at this occasion. In fact, the beginning of the psalm reads this. It says, for the director of music, a masculine musical song of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So now we get the inside scoop. We don't always get this. This is what David says to God personally, and then he later records it. But this is what David says to God when this happens. You, you interested? It's not very long. Let me just read this to you. It's kind of interesting. This is what's going on in his mind. He says, why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? He's talking about Doeg. Why do you boast all day long, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God? Your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor, you who practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth, shalah, which means stop and think about that. You love every harmful word, oh, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Shalah. The righteous will see in fear, and they will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name, I will hope for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Read a little bit more than we normally do today, but can you capture David's feeling? He's ticked. And at the beginning here, what we see is that David takes his anguish to God and he tells him, I can't stand this dude. This guy is evil incarnate. He has destroyed innocent people. And my prayer is, is that you will bring him down, that he will pay for it. Does that surprise you? Should we pray that way to God sometimes? I think we pray honestly. We pray what God puts in our hearts. And sometimes that may be precisely what God wants us to pray for. That's how David is led to pray, and that's how David prays. He gets it all out to God. You know, modern psychologists will often tell people, if you're hurting, you have grief, and things are bothering you, go out to the, you know, go out to the woods, go out to a cliff, go out to someplace in nature and just yell it out at nature and just get it all out. Yell and scream and maybe it helps. You know, some people I think it does help. I can see where there's some, you know, some value to it. But here's the problem. It's kind of like when you have a problem at work with the boss and you go and yell at the custodian. If you've got a problem with the boss, his name is Yahweh. That's when it's capitalized L-O-R-D. Yahweh is God's personal covenant name. His name is Yahweh. He is your father if you know him as Lord. And he's in control. Don't go yell at nature. Go take those concerns to God. He can handle it. There's nothing you can throw at him that he can't handle. So pour it out. 
you know, I would really very strongly encourage you to take your anguish to God. If you are storing something in your basement, some pain, some grief, something that you felt like God had wronged you with, something that you think that life is unfair and so forth, and you haven't gotten it out to God and you're stuffing it in and you're being tough and strong, you're not being biblical. You're not following the example of David. Get it out. Take it to God of the universe and deal with it or it will deal with you. It will eat you up. So David gives us that example. And then the final example is you find hope in God. The last part of this is he recognizes that he, he wants to be like an olive tree. An olive tree was the most valued tree in Israel at the time. It was a beautiful tree. Um, it had a lot of fruit and it lasted forever. And David is saying, I want to be like that. I want to be spiritually attractive. I want to be somebody who has a lot of fruit and does a lot of good for people. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit is leading him to basically say, I, I, I envision myself as living forever. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to be with God forever. And I know that God is going to work this all out in the end. That's what David is doing. And he's praying in that way. And then he begins praising God for it. I'm growing in this experience. I want to grow like this tree. I want to get close to you. I want to be in God's house. I want to be close to God. And when I'm in his presence, all this good stuff's going to happen. Good stuff. Now, what David is saying is interesting because God is the God of redemption. He makes the bad good when we follow him. And out of this horrible, horrible situation, God brings Abiathar to David. And Abiathar becomes his close friend. And Abiathar becomes his priest. Now he has a priest, he has a prophet, he's the king, he has the nucleus for a kingdom. Abiathar will write, we believe, a lot of what's being written here after Samuel dies. Abiathar finishes the book and probably writes a lot of the next book. Abiathar will be with David for the rest of David's life. Abiathar, unfortunately, will you know, not prove himself loyal to King Solomon and will step down and that will end the reign of Eli's family as predicted by Samuel. But nevertheless, you can see how God used this horrible thing to bring about some good. And God will do that in each of our lives. I'm reading another book on Lincoln. And if you want to blame anybody, you can blame Rick Tussing. He let me borrow it. But it's a very good book. A. Lincoln, thank you again. It's really good. One of the things that's interesting though about him is that if you look at all the things that Lincoln did that were really the greatest things that Lincoln did, they're all the flip side of all the things he did that were the worst things he did. That's how great leaders are. Have you noticed that? They learn from their mistakes and they grow. David grew through this experience because of his hope in God, because he knew that there was a future, that he had something to look forward to, and it was worth being the best he could till that day came. So I encourage you to look at your life and to find your hope in God. When things go bad, when you've made mistakes, you know, when things have gone bad like this, you confess it to God, you confess it to others, you get out that frustration and the anger, and then you, you go to God and you say, um, yeah, how can I grow? How can I learn from this? And I want you to think about that today. How do you find your hope in God? How are you growing through bad consequences in your life? What have you learned from the things that have gone wrong in your life? And the second thing to that is, how has God brought good out of those bad situations? Think of even the tragedies in your life, and maybe God has brought you closer to himself or to another person in that process. Think about what God is doing in each of those situations. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. One day we're going to eat our consequences. 
And some are going to be good, and some are going to be bad. I urge you to get those consequences, the results of those consequences, right while you're here on earth before you face God in heaven. We're going to have a banquet in heaven celebrating the marriage of of Christ to the church. It's going to be an incredible meal. And I think I'm going to enjoy it a whole lot more if I've already cleared those things before while I'm here on earth. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for the example of King David. Um, Things he did right, things he did wrong. Uh, Lord, we're waiting. We're waiting on you for what you'll do in our lives in various ways. And each of us have different experiences. But I pray that when we make mistakes and we do things wrong along the way, that we will more quickly get back right with you and follow you, confess our sins, pour out our anguish, um, and seek to grow and learn from the experience and trust in you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.